All right. This is the great speech, the big speech. We are talking about the World War II era here, and we are focused on a midpoint of it. Um, our host this week, we do have Mike, Matt, Ross, and Landon are all on. And uh, who are we talking about? What are we talking about this week, Ross? Yeah, thanks for asking, Landon. So we are going to be covering Franklin D. Roosevelt, President of the United States of America. And last week we learned about the great we'll fight on the beaches speech. And as Winston predicted, sometime the new world will have to come in for the liberation of the old, I believe is what he said. So I've been. Could you, how, how is it that Winston said it? Could you try to say it like him? And the new world with all its power and might. That's all I got. Thank you. But Thank you. it on. was going to happen. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how that got it, got its kickoff. So before we get too much into the speech, though, um, that infamous day, if you will, we're going to give a little background on FDR himself. So because he's a pretty interesting, interesting figure. I mean, we've all heard of FDR. Uh, he was a president, president during the Great Depression, president during World War II, so pretty influential, big name. So we've all heard about him, but a couple of just things to run through. So he was the uh, 32nd president of the United States, and he was president, get this, from 1933 until 1945. That's right. 12 years he was the president. You guys elected might be asking. For, elected for 16 years, almost became yeah. King Roosevelt. One four four consecutive terms was he elected as the president of the United States. You guys might be wondering how is that possible? I thought I thought you could only do it twice. That was the twenty second amendment enacted after Roosevelt's presidency to pretty much try to stop that from happening again. Yeah, because he did win four consecutive elections. So he was a Democrat. Um, again, president for those twelve years. First elected during kind of in the middle of the Great Depression. Um, and then obviously saw us through that into into the Second World War. So a couple other things about him, just a little background. Um, he was well-educated guy. He went to Harvard uh, College, and then he later went to Columbia Law School. Uh, he's a member of the Ro Roosevelt family, who we've all heard of from our friend Teddy Roosevelt. They were kind of distantly related um, and kind of a major player for most of his adult life. So he was a state senator. Then he was assistant secretary of the Navy during World War One, later governor of New York before late, finally being elected president of the United States. Um, interesting tidbit, because a lot of times you'll see him, he's in the wheelchair. Uh, he uh, that was at, in 1921. So he was well into his adult life and career when he developed an illness which paralyzed him. So that was not something he was born with. So anyway, that's kind of a couple things on Roosevelt. But before we jump too much into the World War, something he's really known for uh, to, as part of his attempt to get us out of the Great Depression is the New Deal. And I think we kind of see an ode to that with the kind of liberals, the Green New Deal of today. So anybody want to give a quick ex explanation of, of the New Deal and why that was a big deal for Roosevelt? Yeah, I think... Um... The New Deal got him elected. I think he had quite a quite a bit of a sharper perspective on the economy and how to turn it around um, following it was Hoover, right? Am I correct on that? He followed Hoover. Yeah, Hoover was the president when the depression uh, first happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So the New Deal, I think besides World War II, like top top of mind um, thing you think about with Roosevelt is like the New Deal, social programs, pretty much everything we know, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, the, you know, farmer subsidies and supports, the Agriculture Commodities Act, uh, Conservation Corps that built all the trails and national parks and the lodges that this crew uh, likes to frequent um, on their camping journeys were all a byproduct of how to like get America working again off of 20, 30% unemployment. Um, but that was three years after the Great Depression. I think the Great Depression started uh, this huge global tumultuous cycle, um, but it didn't happen that fast or even like get that deep right away. The stock market crashed in October of 29. It went from like 350 down to 200, not that far off of the COVID stock market crash that we saw. Like that in and of itself, it was bad, but it wasn't... It didn't um, immediately like halt the global economy. Um, what also followed was a super severe drought, the Dust Bowl um, in the heartland in 1930. And then general consumer expectations. Nobody, everybody was already starting to save and they didn't spend. And that just created a deflationary cycle of like, we're not going to spend, so prices are going to go down. That stopped production. Companies stopped hiring. Wages went down and created this spiral that just bled out um, over three years. And you know, by the time Roosevelt was elected in '33, he had to turn it around with all kinds of uh, social programs in the first 100 days that he really, I think, kind of used a lot more executive power to move the economic needle than had been done by presidents before and really almost remolded the presidency um, in that manner, you know, since 33. Okay, so you've got not only is he president for longer than anyone else has been president, but then he also enacts these policies, these new things that kind of like you said, were kind of a new thing for a president to do. Um, to try to get the country going out of its worst depression. Um, so, I mean, just those two things alone make him a huge influential figure. And now we have to throw in that he also was the president that ushered the United States into, you know, the biggest war of all time. So uh, I think he's pretty interesting, worth spending some time with um, some of the stuff he wrote, some of the stuff he said. Um, but again, before we jump too much into the speech, because I'll be totally honest, the first time I listened to the speech, it doesn't quite have the pizzazz or the, I don't want to use the word flair, but energy. You know, when you listen to the, we'll fight, we'll sh fight on the beaches, it kind of just gives you this sense of inner, like, yeah, yeah, rah, rah. And this one just does not seem to do that. Um, but I felt like it was, so for someone listening to the speech, you know, this many years after, we're in a time when that is not a threat to us. Um, it just doesn't have much gut-wrenching power to me, to be totally honest. But yeah. I feel like it yeah. might be a little bit helpful just for the listeners and for ourselves to to put ourselves in the place of people at the time. So we talked a lot about, you know, Britain during kind of world, the beginning of World War II. I think we mentioned it in our last episode, how 
what it England got, or London got bombed like 50 some nights in a row. But I think it would be to really understand the speech and what it meant for the people and why it had the influence that it did. I think you have to kind of put yourself in the place of the people living at the time, if that makes sense. Um, so again, before I don't want to jump too much into like just avoid the speech, but I feel like that little bit of context might be a little bit helpful to to get more out of it. Yeah. So I think it's I think it would be interesting to talk about Britain first, and I'm glad you mentioned like the the London bombings and all that because I think that is because that went on before this speech. Um, and I imagine the American people would be like pretty well aware of, of the war in Europe and um, what was going on and especially what Britain was going through just with them being close allies and you know sharing the same language and history and whatnot. Um, so the, the bombings that you're talking about, the Blitzkrieg started in 1940. Um, but like there was a, there was definitely some, some uh, fears about that going back to like 1938. Um, so the British government actually distributed 40 million gas masks to the British public uh, in 1938, and they started producing millions of cardboard coffins just in like preparation for like the the carnage they were expecting. Um, September 7th, 1940, was the uh, beginning of a stretch of 267 days where the Germans bombed London 71 times throughout that stretch. Um, Ross, I think you said 50 days in a row or something. I don't know if that's 100% true, but certainly 71 times in a, a stretch of less than a year. You know, that's one every three and three quarters days. You know, there, there's a bombing going on. Um, so air raids uh, or air raid shelters, blackouts, rationing were all like very routine in England. Um, they had shelters made of corrugated steel. Most of them were, were uh, either underground or kind of semi-underground. Um and a lot of British citizens were given ration books um, for basic staples that, uh, you know, not every item needed uh, rationing, but quite a few. So the American people would have been pretty well aware of, like, the, the types of things they, they might be facing if a war was imminent. Um, at least I imagine most, most of the people who are reading the news were. Um, so at the time of the speech, the United States was still in somewhat of a, de uh, a depression. Uh, unemployment was at 15% still um, as of 1940, which is down from the 25% it was at the, the height of the depression. Um, subsequently, years it would it would drop quite a bit. Um, but um, but yeah, things were starting to amp up in terms of rearmament in the United States. So there's definitely a sense of, of fear, a sense of uh, preparation. Um, and um, yeah, gasoline, meat and clothing were probably the, the some of the more tightly rationed items um, leading up to this speech. Another interesting thing leading up to this speech uh, or speech. So I looked up FDR's approval ratings. Um, at least according to Gallup. So Gallup is is probably one of the more reliable and furthest you know furthest dating back uh, polling organizations. So right before this speech, he was actually at a really really high approval rating. So he had about a 70% approval rating. Um, shortly after this speech, his approval rating went up to 83%, which is pretty remarkable for U.S. presidents. Um, 
So anyway, I suppose maybe I jumped the gun a little bit with some of the, the uh, you know, how the breeze uh, speech was accepted. But that's kind of setting the scene for what the American people are, are uh, where they're at pre the speech. 83%. My gosh. Does anyone know what the record is for any U.S. president <laughs> approval rating? George Washington, 100%. So I'm cheating a little bit because I did look up a bunch of these. Uh, I don't know for sure. I think it might have been George W. Bush after 9-11 because he was at 91% uh, at that point. Um, okay. 91% he was? Uh, according to Gallup, yeah. According okay. to Gallup. Yeah. yeah, I see George W. Bush. Yeah, September 21st, 2001, George W. Bush was 90%. His lowest was 25%. Um, seven years later, in October of 2008. Wow. I mean, there's no one lower than 25 except for Nixon and Truman. No, wait. Somehow. Oh wait, no, no. That yeah, that works. All right, so we've talked about Roosevelt, the New Deal, the Great Depression. We haven't got to the speech yet. Is that right? Is that where we're at? Yeah, we're almost yeah. there, though. We're almost okay, there. We're getting hold on, there. We're getting hold there. Hold on. Hold on. What I, what I found interesting, I think when we think of the Great Depression, we're always like, America, the stock market crash, the Dust Bowl. The Great Depression is the reason World War II happened and what it did to Europe um, and Germany in particular was actually a little bit of the firecracker for all of this, or at least it helped stoke much of what happened abroad because Wall Street crashed. So even, you know, Wall Street crashes today, the global economy is in a turmoil. Like that has been the case for at least a century. I think this is the first instance of it was in 29. So when when Wall Street crashed, what happened was the the first, investment bank to go bankrupt because of that was Credit Allstadt in Vienna in May of 31. It did take two years, but the biggest, the Goldman Sachs of Europe in Vienna went bankrupt. Why does that matter? Well, it was owned by Mr. Rothschild. Ever heard of that name? The Rothschilds? You haven't heard? I've heard of them. Those robber barons, is that what they were called? So the Rothschilds were a Jewish family who parked, who basically set up shop in like Paris and London and Rome and Vienna. And before everyone could text each other, they were just a family who wrote, they, they had communication lines between all the major countries and very much did investment banking too. Um, they invented it, essentially. They were heavily invested in the U.S., um, but as a result of the U.S. Wall Street banking collapse, they collapsed too. They were helping to administer, to finance the rebuilding of Europe post-World War I. Now it had been 12 years. Um, but what ended up occurring was they went bankrupt. That hurt the Dow's and the Young Act that were rebuilding Germany, and Germany had to pay France back and all this is being handled via Wall Street and the Rothschilds. They went bankrupt. 
So Germany starts going in a tailspin, 25% unemployment by 32. Um, Hitler lost the 32 election, but gained enough support that he easily won it in 31. And the effects of Germany having to work back their debt from World War One were exasperated immensely by the Great Depression. Because this investment bank in Vienna failed, Hitler ran a lot of propaganda against Jews and their inability or, or the social and economic troubles that Germany was having um, and fanned the flame for some of the racial things he did, but it also made it very easy for him to take this, this depression the the bad terms of the Treaty of Versailles, the bad terms of some of the acts that followed, and dial up the heat on that to go invade the territories that um, he took away. So I, you know, I really think <clears throat> in some of my reading, like the Great Depression hurt America, but it actually perhaps even affected Europe more and was the start of this war that we did not enter into even, you know, until a decade later. Bam, that's fascinating. That yeah. really makes one look at the year 2020 with a little bit more uh, positivity, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so looking at that then, like, I think that those are interesting things, like just the, the what the effects or the aftermath of the Great Depression, kind of what it created in Europe. Obviously, things were not great in the United States, so I feel like that ties in well, kind of like what with a little bit of Matt had said, like this kind of uncertainty, fear. People are just kind of maybe not in the most stable place. I mean, all those things uh, that I guess right now, 2020 produces somewhat of similar things for a lot of people who maybe lost their jobs or out or whatever, but um, you know, might make them receive the speech differently than someone living in a more prosperous time, if that makes sense, I guess. Um, but kind of the last thing before jumping into the speech, then I think to really set a little bit of context or tone for to try to listen to it. It's not just obviously, obviously, I mean, he gave the speech the day after Pearl Harbor. So it's not just, oh, things are really bad in Europe. Oh, we might get, you know, um, they might get like that here, that type of thing. Um, but then you obviously have Pearl Harbor happen, but I guess something that just jumped into my head a little bit. Does anyone know, I did not look this up, so I do not, but does anyone know the public, was there any public support for entering into World War II before Pearl Harbor? What were the, what was, what's the average American thinking at that time? Does anyone look into that? Um, well, it was, it was a mix. I think generally... I know for sure it was a mix. Um, it, whether it weighed one way or another more. No, it definitely weighed more against going to war because one of FDR's campaign promises was, I will not go to war. Um, but obviously that did not happen. So definitely America did not want to participate in World War II. And it goes to, you know, time is short, like, the foundation of American foreign policy as soon as the Revolutionary War ended was like, we're not going to get involved. It's like, let the old world beat itself up every two decades. We had to get involved in World War I. Um, but I would imagine some of that sentiment of 
stay out of foreign affairs was definitely still around post World War One and, and to stay on the sidelines. Yeah, I guess it's jumping off that too. Just now, I'm just thinking out loud. But I would imagine just after ex, you know, after World War One, how you know terrible and traumatic that was. The amount of people died, all of that. I would imagine people were not exactly gung ho about you know doing it again and going back to Europe, if you will. Um, but anyway, so you've got FDR, who's pretty well liked by the American people. He's been president for a long time. He's ushered in all these programs, and then um, obviously. Britain's kind of not doing great. The world, the war is going on in Europe. Hitler's taken over. France has pretty much fallen. You've got the Blitz, 40 million gas masks, all this. And then uh, then you have December 7th of what 1941. So the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And that is obviously the kind of the jumping ground for the speech we're about to go over. But uh, just thinking about Pearl Harbor, I don't know how you guys think about it. In my mind, I always kind of compare it to like a 9-11. Would you guys say that's fair? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. So I think, I mean, even death, like casualty rates are somewhat similar, I believe. I Sorry, I didn't look this. I don't have the actual numbers in front of me, but I'm pretty sure they were both between two and 3,000 people. Yeah, it was like 3,000 yeah. people, I think. The yeah. Yeah, and I think that the Pearl Harbor was a little bit less 9/11, but I mean similar ballpark. So, if you've got the United States of America, this big, powerful country coming out of the Great Depression, big military, has so far tried to stay neutral. Why in the world would someone do this attack that would pretty surely usher in us entering the war? Thoughts. Why would someone commit this attack? Is that the question? Yeah, so I mean if you look at the situation, you've got war in Europe and you've got war in the world and you've got this huge major superpower you know pretty much staying neutral. So why would someone, you know, swing, take the first make the first punch if you will? I mean, when you could pretty easily foresee that then they are going to get involved in the war. Yeah, that's a good question. I, for some reason, never really thought about that. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you have the answer. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm practically tipping over here. I, don't, I mean, I don't think I really have a good answer. I mean, I kind of think I, I, right, Churchill even comments on it in his speech at the end of the, the beaches. You know, someday the, the new world with all its power and might, blah, blah, blah. Um, it just seems to me odd that then, I mean, I'm going to guess it's something to the effect of they foresaw us entering the war at some point and we're going to try to hit when, you know, we didn't expect it or we actually, they maybe would have a better chance of inflicting a lot of damage. So almost, uh, it's going to happen anyway. We might as well get the first shot in. I'm going to guess that's it. I don't know if that's how accurate that is, but that's really the only reason I can think of that makes any sense. Yeah. I'm getting some information from Steve here, um, just that might be some food for thought. Population of Japan in 1941 is 73 million. Population of the United States in 1941 is almost double that, 133 million. Uh, let's do one more number check. I'm getting one more number from Steve. United States military size in 1941. Uh, we had 1.3 million active duty troops. 
and Japan, 1941 military size. Um, wow, bigger than ours, 1.7 million people. That's crazy. Yeah, I did not. I would not have expected that to be honest either. So, so Japan to to also fact check. Japan was not that affected by the Great Depression. They got out of it by about 33. But what they were doing, um, they had just you know a very old, um, you know, large history and their own culture for you know perhaps centuries longer than most of our Western culture history books or whatever. You know, the East is is just as old as the West, maybe older. You know, they had watched Great Britain take over the world, um, 1700s, 1800s. Now we're in a modern day they watched world war one unfold um mike what did you just say how many people the u.s was barely double their size yeah yeah the u.s was not quite double their size 100 yeah versus japan's 73 right. million but what's the geography of japan guess uh it's square footage i feel like japan's like about the size of california Right on. Size of California. So, so many people on an island in the 20th century knowing that the United States, Great Britain have conquered all in order to keep their supply chains and people hungry and fed. Like the number one rule of government and societies was like you have to eat oil and food. Um, And so they had built up enough of a military power and had strategic plans to basically take over Southeast Pacific area. Like this was a time for them to conquer. I think they had some alliances, at least with Italy and Germany and the Axis powers, but they were about to go on a tear and shore up more land and resources to keep Tokyo fed. And they didn't want the U.S. to get in the way. So they just, you know, swiftly decided to cut out our legs um, where we might get involved and stop them from taking over the Philippines or, or whatnot. I don't know if we had any certain claims of that, but they were about to get aggressive for, I wouldn't say noble purposes at all, but at least strategic resources purposes and started with Hawaii. Yeah, that seems pretty similar. I mean, on my for my on the spot research here, it seems similar that they were just trying to prevent, um, pretty much prevent American naval powers or or presence in Southeast Asia that they thought was somewhat inevitable. Um, hence the attack on our our bases in Hawaii for on on Pearl Harbor. So, so I guess anyway, that's the um the background of the speech, if you will. Uh, so you've got. Uh, FDR, I, does anyone have, so I guess we talked about his approval rating. I just think that's interesting. So Bush has jumped to, what, 90% after um, 9-11. So you've got an already popular president in FDR. Now they've been attacked. So I would assume there's similar public sentiment, you know, after this attack on our country, on our military base in Hawaii, that there was, that, you know, the U.S. had, that we all remember um, after 9-11. So all that said, I just feel like that's helpful because I do think that the speech, not that it's boring, but it just doesn't have that, the flair, or I think the rhetoric, or maybe not the rhetorical power, but the, the impact that Churchill's does on someone who's not really living, living through the times. 
But can I say, can I say one more interesting thing about FBR's approval rating? I'm looking at uh, various presidents' approval rating on the approval rating, rating page of Wikipedia. There's a general pattern for everyone in that they generally just go down through all their one or two terms. Um, President Trump's is virtually the exact same the entire term. Interesting. Um, and But FDR's goes gradually up throughout the whole thing. His is the only one that does that compared to uh, Bush, Eisenhower, Trump, like I said, is on this page. Uh, I closed it out, unfortunately. But yeah, interesting, interesting little bit there. Only question. So, I mean, was there like a spike, though? Because this is, I guess, not the end end of his presidency. But I mean, was did it spike? Like you said, it went up. Do you feel like that was somehow corresponded to these attacks on Pearl Harbor, where you have George Bush, where his Improvement was high, where 9/11 was early on as, in his presidency, where you've got FDR, the the attacks are at least on the second half of his presidency. Does that make sense? So it's based on I'm looking at the same graph you are, Mike. Based on the the timing of it, just because it 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 has like over the span of a year, and that's like a, a the whole that's like one small portion of the graph. It's hard to tell the exact timing of the speech and the approval rating, but it looks I mean it's basically shortly after that. When we're first getting into the wars is when it there is a I suppose you can call it a spike, but it was kind of I mean, not that far off the trajectory of, of where where things were going. Um, yeah, was his his approval rating was going up quite a bit. Um, Bush's was like an unbelievable straight up spike. Like he was hovering right around 55 percent. And then shoots way up to 90 so not not even I mean I would say his go FDR's goes up maybe five points after uh, as we enter the war. Um, yeah, George W. Bush is forty five points after nine eleven. Do you think approval ratings matter? You're president of a country. You're going through these tumultuous grinding big decision times do you lean on the sentiment of the people for your decision making or do you lean on your advisor's gut personal worldly perspective asking should they matter or do they matter either one take it however you want Well, of course they shouldn't matter, but, you know, depending upon what president you are, you're going to let that affect you more or less in decision making, right? So, um, yeah, should they matter? No. Do they matter? It depends on the president in terms of how much they affect his or someday her decision making. I don't know that they shouldn't matter because they are presiding over the American people, you know, so like the, the will, so to speak, um, isn't negligible. Obviously you can't like make your, all of your decisions based on, on that sort of stuff. But, but yeah, I would agree that for, uh, you know, varying presidents have very degree of 
influenceability. But I kind of think I agree with Matt a little bit. Like on one hand, yeah, like what Schaefer said, like they shouldn't matter, right? Because peasants not you get blamed for things that aren't necessarily their fault, or that. I mean, you could go on and on and on. But at the same time, I mean, if their job is to lead the American people, you would think that. Not that it's the only measure of a president, but you'd think, you know, you'd have to at least consider, are the people happy under your leadership, if that makes sense? Um, I feel like that's at least one outcome that would be helpful in determining how good of a job president's doing. But You also have to think about, are you saying, do they matter in terms of evaluating the actual effectiveness of a president? Or, do they, you know, because that's another thing, too. If, you know, you're looking in retrospect, it's you can't really judge a president by their approval rating i wouldn't say you know or at least it's awfully hard to like i don't know if george bush was really 45 percent better at 9 11 than he was when he left office you know or, or whatever the difference was um so yeah it's it's hard to to use that as a measure but i think it is just as at least as a gauge of the public support for the war um because i mean I imagine most of, most of the American people were probably thinking that this was going to happen at some point, and they seemed to be um, on board with it. And just seeing the the response to the speech, they're they're on board with it. But I'll I'll let Ro- I shoot. I think I'll keep stepping on Ross's toes with that. So I'll let uh, Ross. Are we gonna are we gonna hear part of the speech or, or what's what's next? I'm gonna read a part of the speech. Speech, speech, yeah, speech, speech. 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 So the speech, like we said, it's over seven minutes long, which really, if you think about it, for a presidential speech is not very long. One of the things I was reading kind of said that that was a deliberate choice by Roosevelt, but um, I'm not going to read for seven minutes. So um, I'll try to do, I think the first part is the most recognizable. Um, I feel like I'll just start and then we can talk about it a little bit. Sound fair? Fair. Okay. And I do not have any sort of FDR impression, so this is just going to be read in my own in my own voice. It's like a thick Bostonian 1930s accent. Yeah, so not a not a kid from Central Illinois. Um, here we go, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and, at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack caused on the Hawaiian Islands, or the attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. 
Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. I'll stop there. Um, but I feel like the first part is the um, when he actually says, you know, this a date which will live in infamy is probably the most known or the most recognizable from the speech. I do. I don't know. Just listening to it. It was interesting, I guess. I had never listened to the whole speech before. Um, it like how much time he kind of takes in it because it's a relatively short speech of pretty much setting up the stage that we had been in these negotiations and we were pretty deliberately deceived by, by Japan. Um, that's just kind of one thing that stuck out to me is uh, I guess I maybe wasn't aware just apparently we had been trying to negotiate peace or at least talk about peace. And he almost sets them up as the bad guy in the sense that, you know, they were deliberately deceiving us knowing that what they were about to do. Um, but like I said, outside of that, it's the it, overall. I mean, I don't think it has the gut-wrenching effect of the fight on the beaches. But I mean, like kind of like we said, if you're actually in the time period and experienced Pearl Harbor, similar to you know George Bush's speech after 9/11, I'm sure it created quite a bit of rah 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 to the American public. What does that say about the difference, though? I mean, Churchill is just like poetic and shakespearean and like trying to like rally the troops after a devastating retreat at dunkirk and we just get attacked and you your description of fdr speech is like well it's pretty boring he's like here was our diplomatic relations with japan and it fell through and maybe we should do this thing like is there any sort of Thing to infer about Americans at the time um, like he's trying so hard to just be pragmatic are we so more pragmatic and, and less emotional in some way yeah and that's say, interesting oh. I, I think I think context is important too because he this was a address to Congress to ask for a declaration of war which I think is a little bit more of a formal thing where you need to lay out your argument you need to, you know, as opposed but, to but wasn't it on wasn't it on the radio did the america i mean fdr was known I, it, for his fire been, chats. It, i mean i mean a lot of things are on the radio and tv and stuff you know like c-span has a bunch of congressional hearings that are super boring c-span was around <laughs> right but i would say it's something so you know what i mean but, I, but I, think I of think of the house that. of commons and even you know just what it is today i mean they scream and shout at each other i was gonna say that's i mean like just i mean right just the i mean the don't the brits do that like i mean i'm basing this off the movie the darkest hour or whatever i guess but like they scream and they wave their little white you can you can look at you can watch them today they're still in that same confined room shouting profanities and the most emotional we get is like speech at a time to an empty room raising our voice a little with like a poster like you're wrong mr democrat person like it's not uh, that profane I just, I just got a message from steve here the <laughs> the speech was broadcast live yeah the infamy it was speech boring it's broadcast live i mean i don't i boring is i don't mean to say it's boring in itself i don't know if that's the only word i would take away from it i'm just comparing it to we'll fight on the beaches it just but, doesn't have the Power but the there were only three words that actually lived in infamy. This day will <laughs> live in infamy. Like, 
like that was all that was carried over. Like there's paragraphs from the Churchill speech. So was that just the difference between Churchill and FDR? Like was that just their personalities? You think? say america is generally speaking a lot more pragmatic and a lot less poetic you know so i I don't know that yeah like i don't know that anyone really speaks that way in american politics yeah i I can see where matt's coming from there I, i think there's probably some some legitimacy there uh i've got a couple more fun facts about this speech here <laughs> 33 minutes after he finished speaking, Congress declared war. Only one representative, Jeanette Rankin, voted against the declaration of war. That sounds like a woman. Were there any women representatives back then? Um, there was at least one. <laughs> Are you sure that's a woman? It is. She yeah. also voted. She was one of like 40 that voted against World War One. She was a known okay. pacifist, but she was yeah. the only one that voted against World War Two. First woman to hold federal office in the United States. Yeah, I think she's got a statue um, somewhere in D.C. I don't know if it's the Capitol, but she's got a statue somewhere. The woman who did not want to fight Hitler. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I think that's I a little, say. that might be uh, painting this in a very un, untrue, inaccurate light if she was, in, yeah, more I mean, peaceful. They don't want war. It's not that she didn't hate Hitler. That is one thing I, uh, that is one I read up just looking, uh, reading into the, like the, the home front and like that kind of culture or, or the nature of that. Leading up to the war, so before this, um, almost universally, th- churches in the United States were against the United States getting involved. It was only after Pearl Harbor that a lot of church, like prominent church um, people, you know, pastors and uh, different congregations, were actually on board with it. Um, but there is a very strong, like, pacifist movement, at least among Christians in the in the U.S. Uh, before uh, Pearl Harbor, which I thought was interesting. Was so there this... any sort of context for the change, like the justification? I mean, I, mean, I think just the, the fact that we got attacked. Um, yeah. Yeah, I would imagine just the, the nature of the attack is, is what kind of changed at least the the common church people um because i mean after that there was a fair amount of support but yeah i remember reading like the i forget her name honestly already sorry but the the, who mike mentioned that voted against going to world war ii um she wasn't i don't think she was the only like known pacifist around i think the others switched because of the fact that we were attacked um they kind of said okay that kind of i don't know if you want to say makes it justifiable but that kind of triggered their change in heart to supporting the war where she obviously did not. Yeah, pacifism was was somewhat of a a movement, so to speak, um, pre-war. But yeah, I guess she was the only one who really stuck with it. I wonder what her arguments were. Like, oh yeah, like Europe's in shambles. We've now been attacked. Like, I don't know. Just like, did she want to do anything? Like, or just kind of nothing. Not obviously I mean, not to go to war, but like, did she want to invest in better defense in case the war came to our border, like borders, or you know what I mean? I don't know. 
Yeah, I'm not sure that we'll get that right away, but I would think given in a body of like 400 people, like one person ought to vote against the war. Like that's completely fine, and uh, I would think is part of a, a rational body of people in a spectrum of perspective. Yeah. Speaking of the, um, I guess to move away from our pacifists, but speaking of the, to a, moving more into a non-pacifist, the just. The um, we talked just briefly about like where their personalities at different Churchills and FDRs, but obviously they knew each other, worked closely together during World War II. But a scene I kind of found somewhat interesting in I keep relating that Darkest Hour movie, but it's a pretty good movie. Um, but have you guys seen it? The Darkest Hour is that what it's called? Do you guys remember when Churchill phones FDR? No, describe it for us. So that is just an interesting scene in the movie because I feel like Churchill looked honestly a little wimpy in a movie that had a pretty strong, like positive portrayal of him. But um, it's, you know, before he has much support, some people still want to negotiate with Hitler. Things are still going really poorly. We haven't had the successful evacuation of the British military from France yet. And he calls FDR um, on the phone and pretty much just begging him for help. Um, And, FDR kind of him haws around it and oh yeah we'll do you know blah blah blah, but doesn't really give any sort of beneficial support but um does anyone like did they know each other well I mean before the war does anyone know um no they did not know each other particularly well obviously they knew of each other uh before the war um I believe that they did actually meet each other in passing around 1918, uh, of which FDR remembered, Churchill did not, and FDR was a little bit annoyed by this. Um, But other than that, I believe it was not until, let me check my notes right here, 41, FDR and Churchill met for the first of nine face-to-face conferences during the war. Correspondence between the two began in early 1940 when Churchill began writing FDR, asking U.S. to take more active anti-axis role. Uh, yeah, so that is what we're looking at here. So, um, yeah, there is a little bit of antagonism at first because FDR's feelings were hurt that he was not remembered in he this wasn't 1918. Wasn't even that big of a deal in 1918. Like, I, know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but still, I, like every time if you met someone and like two years later you meet him again, one of the guys like oh, I don't remember, I don't know who you are, like I don't remember that. Like, it's nice to know world leaders still have the same feelings as us. Yeah. What's that? What did you just call it, Landon? The Potsdam meeting? What's that? Those were the later talks with um, Stalin involved. Stalin was at the Potsdam meeting Uh-oh. when they were basically dividing up the world amongst each other. It's a simple way to put it. <laughs> what a strange concept. Just to think like, oh yeah, I'm just going to sit at a table and divide the world like me I mean, and- Five other people. Yeah. It was bad. One of Churchill's notes, they had it was just like a list of countries on barely more than a napkin. And it was basically what ended up being the Eastern Bloc and the Iron Curtain. Like Churchill wrote, like, 
we're getting 100% of this country, we'll go 50-50 on this with the Soviets. And he didn't, like, put it in his pocket, and it got out. You can, like, Google it. Um, And he was just, like, so cavalier with how they were going to divide up, basically, Eastern Europe between the Soviets and um, Great Britain and Roosevelt. I think Roosevelt was, like, furious that, like, he let that get out and, like, how they were so cavalier just, like, splitting things up and it ended up falling along those lines. Um, That's interesting. All right, so they weren't they weren't best buds, but they obviously were two leaders that greatly shaped the world following World War II and for, obviously, well, up to this day. Hold on, Ross. I mean, I didn't say they were best buds when they first met. Well, no. Yeah, no, that is what I said. I said they were not best buds when they first met. But who is? I mean, when I first met Landon, I thought, look at that rich white guy. Another another rich white guy. Just what the world needs. But their friendship bloomed and matured. When I first met Mike, he was literally, or the first memory I have of Mike, he was running barefoot and shirtless. And I was like, man, what a weirdo. <laughs> reasonable, reasonable. But again, friendships Somebody mature. listens to NPR. Friendships mature. I got shoes. I still often run without my shirt, though. Um <laughs> Yeah, so no, they did become they did become legitimate friends, uh, despite their differences. And kind of the riff off of what Landon shared there, you know, FDR did not like, you know, Churchill still sort of having this colonialist idea of wanting to kind of col- collect and continue advancing the British Empire uh, versus FDR wanting to end that. Um, there's one little interesting quote here that sort of like speaks into their friendship. Um, but okay, this is from an article I was reading. They established an easy intimacy, a joking informality and moratorium on policy and camp, and also a degree of frankness and intercourse, which, if not complete, was remarkably close to it. Roosevelt cabled Churchill after one of their meetings and said, "It is." Fun decade with you. I like that. That's just such. That I'm, sounds like I don't know something that we would say to each other. Say, I missed that. What say, did you say? Say the last line again. You just cut out. It is fun to be in the same decade with you, Roosevelt, Cable, Churchill. That's a fascinating. You should say that to your friends next time. Hey, it's fun to be in the same decade with you. Like, I feel like that's. I mean, is that a compliment? Like, I mean, it's like not fun to be your friends. Like, it's fun to exist in the relatively the same time period as you. <laughs> Did you say that to someone you did not like? No, of course not. It's yeah, it's it's nice to exist on the planet at the same time as you. Yeah, like I don't know. I mean, I think I don't know. I I don't know if that means they're best buds, but I think at least he had a sense of humor about the uh, just the unfortunate time they were in. You know what I mean? I think like we we would all have some sentiment sentiment about like co-workers with 2020 you know like oh it's good to be in 2020 with you you know just because it's been okay like a, a com- i don't know compar- why everyone is putting here. up so much resistance to fdr and churchill being friends this friendship people say may have re- dramatically changed the outcome of the war 
This is what Churchill said in remarks of FDR's deaths. In Roosevelt, there died the greatest I've ever known. Does that sound like something you'd say about a co-worker? I don't know, because you cut out again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, does this sound like something you would say to a co-worker? In Roosevelt, there died the greatest American friend I've ever known. No, assuming he had more American friends than just Roosevelt. <laughs> Okay, so regardless of whether they're best friends or just friends or just they went through a rough time together. Um, I do think it's worth, I think it's worth, I don't know if, I don't know where we'll get it in here, but Japan sparked us getting into the war. We're longtime friends with Great Britain. We, you know, we're the best friends who got in a, got in a fist fight found our own differences, and became best friends. Germany's obviously the main instigator here, but Japan got us into the war. And the the quote, does everyone know the quote that I'm about to say? Can you see where I'm going? Can you telegraph this? I think I know where you're going. I think it's just important to document. Like They were the instigators for this speech. They're the reason we got there. Isoruko Yamamoto the uh, naval marshal, the head of the Japanese Navy, as soon as this occurred, in a movie, but also a real quote, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve um, upon the attacks of him commanding his uh, army to attack the United States. So... They already knew what they were messing with once they did it. Again, to my point earlier, though, if he says that immediately after, like, why did he do it in the first place? But anyway. All right, we'll, hold on. We'll, Just to be sure. I'm getting a correction here real time. He definitely says that in the movie. I've seen the Several movie. Several movies have said this. No one can actually trace its roots to Yamamoto saying this. I do apologize. Napoleon said something similar. China is a sickly sleeping giant, but when she awakes, the world will tremble, which is kind of true of 2020 even, maybe. But all right, that is not officially ascribed to any Japanese admiral. Thank you for the fact check, but the movie does say it, so we'll leave it there. Anyway, so to kind of bring it all together, so... Looking here, so we've talked a lot about FDR, his life, blah, blah, blah. So I just want to read one paragraph. And yes, this is from Wikipedia, so take it for what it is. But speaking of FDR, so the things he did, like we said, president for longer than any other of the United States. Great Depression, World War II. So this is the, the paragraph I want to read. Roosevelt is widely considered to be one of the most important figures in the history of the United States as well as one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. Historians and political science scientists consistently rank Roosevelt, George Washington, and Abraham Lincoln as the three greatest presidents. Reflecting on Roosevelt's presidency, 
which brought the United States through the Great Depression and World War II to a prosperous future, said FDR biographer Gene Edward Smith in 2007. He lifted himself from a wheelchair to lift the nation from its knees. So you can't get much higher praise than that. So before we close, according to at least, according, according to historians and political scientists, if you have Roosevelt, Washington, and Lincoln between the three, so you've got George Washington, the Revolutionary War, Abe Lincoln, the Civil War, and now you've got FDR, World War II. So among the three of them, who do you take? Landon, you're first. Who do we got? Three. So, so between the three of them, who do you take? Three presidents, three super influential figures, three leaders doing three of our greatest wars. Hold on, hold on. Which, FDR, Lincoln, and Washington. Washington. Yeah. Ooh, 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 ooh. Gosh, I don't know. Um, I. I'll. I, the reason is the whole entire premise of why you would select one of these. I do think, you know, Washington's only dealing with a couple million people. Lincoln's dealing with maybe tens of million, and FDR has almost the entire world's fate in his hands. And so I think the modernity of the his challenge was pretty impressive and um I, I do like lincoln but i would i would put fdr on the same level as lincoln matt who are you going with landon are you even from illinois i was shocked when landon FDR did not choose lincoln. At the so so lincoln? i, I think i do think i think lincoln over I think, abraham lincoln <laughs> i think lincoln and fdr had a, a much bigger challenge than Washington. I think Washington led a band of rebels on their own land against uh, the B team of the British Army, and like, all right, we got our own country, and now we don't have to pay a T tax. Great. Lincoln like solved a moral problem against people who are brothers, you know, amongst you know the same country. FDR had two fronts of battle employing every ounce of resource of economic and time of every American like it was big um, so alright Landon picked FDR Matt who do you got I'm gonna go gosh I'm gonna go Lincoln then Washington then FDR um, Landon gave a very detailed answer. Do you have, do you have yeah. something similar? I mean, I would say, yeah. I, I, reason I I say Lincoln first. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I think just the the. I know it's not the same worldwide stage that FDR was dealing with, um, but just the incredible division. Um, and tumultuousness of that era, as well as just dealing with, um, for 
among one of the I know the the British I, I believe they outlawed slavery before we did, um, but really being on the forefront of that moral issue really for the entire world. Like until then, until that era, I suppose the British did it a little bit before we did, but until that era, slavery was not questioned terribly, uh, terribly hard, you know, throughout the the known world. So I mean, I, I really do think that is a historical and monumental thing for him to to implement in the United States. George Washington to characterize that as just getting rid of a T tax and rebelling against the British B team, I think is a little bit of an understatement. Um, he presided over what I, as a true American, <laughs> see as a, uh, I mean, we, we have the longest standing constitution in the history of the world. I mean, we're, we're really uh, like, it really is an exceptional thing that he kind of got started, um, especially with him stepping down because he had a lot of opportunity. You can't credit the U S constitution of Washington. I'm not crediting him with it, but his role, one, in leading our country as a general, and then two, being the the presider over that. Yeah, he didn't write the whole thing himself, but he was certainly involved and certainly was a, uh, a monumental figure with that. Um, yeah, I mean, FDR is right up there. Like, it is tough. I'm not trying to poo-poo FDR because um, he did deal with a lot. Um, on the just on the international scale, um, but yeah, uh, that's what I would say. All right, Mike, what do you got? Um, uh, the Civil War probably would have become World War One if not for Lincoln. So Lincoln number one there. Um, FDR this number two because Landon made some great points, and Washington number three because Matt made some great points. What do you mean by Civil War would have been World War One? I've never. Also, your that. points were so good, Matt. Matt he put him as last. <laughs> Got it. I, I'm I'm mostly jokey. I mean, of course, I. I don't know. Then again, the French were were uh. No, what was that? The British. What were the British doing in Civil War? There there were some international items there, but no. Um, you know, does. Does the times make the man, or does the man make the times? I think I heard that in the film Lincoln. Um, so it's really hard to say, you know, if FDR had formed the United States instead of Washington, you know, maybe Bernie Sanders would be president right now, president-elect. <laughs> uh, so maybe, thank God, <laughs> that FDR did not. Um if Lincoln had been there during the Depression, um, I don't know. Uh, how would the world look different? Um, I, 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 no, I, I got nothing. I'm, I'm just that rambling. Would be a really, that would be a really fun thing to do, would be to flip-flop presidents. Yeah, that would be a really interesting exercise thing. I'll throw my two cents in then. I'm going to go Lincoln number one. <clears throat> Your guys all gave really detailed political reasons. Mine is I'm sitting in Springfield, Illinois, and I have a picture of Abe Lincoln in my house. So Lincoln all the way for number one. Number two, Landon, you made some really good points about FDR. I do like that. 
But Matt, I liked your point a lot that Washington stepped down. So I'm gonna give a, I'm gonna go Washington and FDR. I'm gonna do it. So we are now past. We'll fight on the beaches. We've evacuated the British military. They're safe. They can fight on. We're through the Great Depression. Well, the Great Depression, we're already through that. But now we're through the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and the U.S. has decided to enter in to the war. Where to really learn about World War II through the speeches of its most influential people, where should we go next? I think the only appropriate spot to go next would be the beaches of Normandy, the beaches of Omaha, that was one of the beaches, right? I don't know, but we'll learn next week when we go over a speech to prepare our troops, our courageous men, uh, on D-Day or on the eve of D-Day. Um, George Patton will be the speaker for next week's – next two weeks, whatever – the next episode of The Speech, guys.